Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Hey, folks, this is Kevin. On today's episode, you'll hear Roger Hales. My penis basically pointing at him like, ha got her, didn't I? <laughs> that and more. But before that, I just want to say, you know, technology is making a lot of things easier, like using the post office. And with Stamps.com, you can do everything you do at the post office right from your computer. And best of all, it's super easy. You don't need to be some sort of tech expert. <laughs> With Stamps.com, all you need is your computer and printer to buy official U.S. postage for any letter, any package. Stamps.com provides the expertise. They'll send a digital scale, automatically calculates exact poke, poke, postage. They'll even help you decide the best class of mail based on your needs. Just print your postage, hand it to the mailman, you're done. Plus, Stamps.com makes it easy to print postage from popular business software like QuickBooks, Outlook, and more. We use Stamps.com at Risk in the Story Studio, and we love it. And right now, you can use our promo code RISK for this special offer. It's a no-risk trial, plus a $110 bonus offer that includes the digital scale and up to $55 free postage. So... Don't wait. Go to stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in risk. That's stamps.com. Enter risk. Now here's the show.
Kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is Graham Green. Behind me now, wait, Grant Green. Grant, <laughs> Graham Green was the novelist. Oh, shit. We're already off to a disastrous start. It's that kind of summer for me, my friends. I, I have to say that it, I, I, I feel like it's a little bit of a miracle that we continue to be able to put out good episodes this summer because my personal life is one unforeseen crisis after another. Let's just say I, I've got to get this hosting done as soon as possible so I can go out looking for a new place to live. There are times that the stories on this show and the show itself are, you know, the only thing that keeps you going because your life itself becomes like one of these stories. And so how appropriate that today's episode is called Humiliating. Situations that took you down a few pegs even if you didn't need to be taken down a few pegs. We're going to start with the wonderfully talented Roger Hales, stand-up comedian based in New York City that we've wanted to have on since the very beginning of the damn show. So it's a thrill to finally have Roger on. Here he is at the People's Improv Theater with a story we call It. How are you guys doing? Pretty good? Are you feeling it? So Wednesday night, it's Thursday, isn't it? <laughs> and that's the last mistake I'm going to make. Uh, yeah, humiliation, always been a thing for me, always been a deep problem for me because uh, I have the complexion, I don't know if you can tell, but I'm extremely white. So when I do get humiliated, I turn uh, that deep crimson red and then people will point out, oh, you're embarrassed, aren't you? And that makes it even worse. So all through my childhood, I suffered intense, intense humiliation at the drop of a hat. I'll take you back to what I remember as my first uh, humiliation that I can remember, at least. I was turning six. It was my sixth birthday. And my parents had hired a, uh, a clown for the thing. They did not tell me that they had hired a clown. They just hired a clown, and I guess they did it because I always had a lot of trouble making friends. And I think that was gonna be their strategy to get friends up. You know, there'll be a clown. This will raise Roger's stock. <laughs> the clown. But I had no idea, and we were there, you know, having our party, cake, conversation, whatever. I'm having a great time. And then out of the blue, comes this clown. <laughs> and I took one look at him, and I was like, that's a clown. I'm getting the fuck out of here. <laughs> and I started to turn that red. But worse, I could feel I was about to bust out crying, and I knew I was going to do it. And it would, that would be game over for my coolness in school if I burst out. But I contain it. 
I contain it in me, and I just get up and got the fuck out and ran up into my room, hid under my bed, and that's when I just started bawling. Tears, snot, the whole nine yards. Just terrified of the clown, really. And my uncle, uh, who's at the party, and he was kind of a genius, was like, oh, wow, Roger looks like he's really upset. Why don't we send up the clown? <laughs> so they do. The clown goes up. All the kids go up. And I'm under the bed. Just... <laughs> And I can't even see the room. I could just see the, the bottom part of the room. But I see these two giant red floppy shoes <laughs> come stepping in. I was like, shit, that might be the clown. <laughs> and it was. And, uh, oh my God, I'll never forget this. He re- the clown reaches in and pulls me out of the bed. <laughs> I guess in the 80s, that kind of stuff was okay. Clowns could touch terrified children in the mid-1980s, and it was fine. And he brings me out, and then he sees that I'm, everybody sees that I'm crying. And one kid from my school who was the cool kid, David, I remember, a little fucker, <laughs> points to me that I'm crying, and he goes, what are you, a girl? And that gets a huge laugh. And that's, I think, when I started drinking. <laughs> no. But before that, I had never really felt humiliation. And it is heartbreaking when you see a kid experience that for the first time. So that began a um, kind of a pattern of, of easily getting humiliated. Although I will say two things about that incident. One, I think I was on the right side of history with thinking that clowns were creepy, right? <laughs> I was. Back then, at that party, I was the only one afraid. Everybody else thought the clown was great. I like to think I'm a pioneer in that way of thinking that clowns are creepy. So that makes me feel good. And secondly, what happened to me, I later became a comedian, right? Which is basically a clown in a hoodie. Am I wrong? <laughs> so something good happened out of that. But it did perpetuate a cycle of humiliation that I would get it very easily until this happened to me. The next most intense humiliation I ever experienced was later on in high school when I started to have my first sexual experiences. Uh, Yeah, go figure. (laughs) Sounds about right. The first time I had sex, I was 16 uh, with my girlfriend who was 15. (laughs) She was four months younger than me, but anyway. Nice little 15-year-old piece of ass. Anyhow. She looked great. She looked great. She was in phenomenal shape. Looked terrific. Anyway, but no, she was a very sweet girl, but uptight in the way that southern girls can kind of get away with. You know, Virginia, you know how they can be uptight and it kind of works with their personality. But great, other than a little uptight. My only problem was with her family, her parents. You know how sometimes... A girlfriend's parents will kind of, uh, well, they'll like you, and then sometimes they'll just kind of tolerate you. Well, they hated me. (laughs) And I think it was because I was always trying too hard around them. Uh, The mom was actually okay. It was the dad who really hated me. And uh, if I were to compare her dad to a movie character, 
it would probably be the Terminator, okay? He was like bald, and he even talked like, I'm Tolliver and Roger, you better come home at nine o'clock. That's the way he talked. And it was very much like an angry Southern football coach, okay? But she and I had a great relationship, and we did have sex for the first time, and for me, the first time I had sex was not good at all. It was just not that great. I was wearing a very thick Trojan non-lubricated condom, so I don't make any more, for good reason, non-lubricated condom. And I didn't know what I was doing, and she didn't really know what she was doing, and so I don't even think I came, I didn't come. But we kind of humped for a while, and I was like, okay, that's sex. <laughs> Penis was inserted, check. And I was kind of nervous about, oh, okay, so this is sex. Like, it's not that great. That's, you know, I probably stink at it, but I mean, what's the big deal? There goes that whole thing. Revenge of the Nerds was wrong, I was basically learning. So fast forward maybe a month or two. We'd had sex a couple more times, you know, as much as you can get away with in high school, which is not much. Similar results. And then one day, one night, after we'd been on a date to a party somewhere, we were in her car, parked, and we were both a little, uh, maybe a little drunk and horny, and, uh, no, but I had no condom on me. But we decided to go for it anyway, you know, we're like, let's just do it. So we start to have sex, and the second I put my uncondomed penis in her vagina, it fucking dawned on me. I was like, oh, this is sex. <laughs> And it felt so different and so much better than what I had been doing before. Uh, it just like dawned on me, like, oh, it makes so much sense. This is what all the poetry was written about. <laughs> this is why they built the pyramids. <laughs> this is why Joan of Arc like built the Ark. Like, <laughs> this is it, right? <laughs> and it, it, like fireworks were going off in my mind. My my. My body felt great, obviously, and my mind was just spinning with the possibilities of a whole lifetime of this. And it was like an emotional, physical high. And right as I'm like peeking, the light in the car comes on, and it's her dad opening up the back. Yes! The Terminator himself. He opens up the back gate like this. So I'm like facing him like this. And I'm like straddling his girlfriend. I mean, his. <laughs> this was the South. <laughs> Freud would love that one. Uh, but just straddling his daughter. My penis basically pointing at him like, ha ha, got her, didn't I? You a fool! And I mean, we were shocked. And I just went from such a high to such an immediate low. He look, you know, he's in shock. Fortunately, he doesn't, whatever. He just closes the thing, yells and walks into the house. And I looked at her like in the eye. She looked at me and I just came. Because <laughs> I was there. And man. The body gonna do what the body gonna do. (laughs) 
But after I came, she just started laughing. And I started laughing. And it's exactly what Kevin was saying before. The la- it, would, it would have been the most humiliating situation ever. But it was like, there it is. We did it. Like, that's as bad as it gets, probably. Right? That's about as bad as it gets. And we're still alive. And I'm still able to come, apparently. <laughs> so we started laughing. And it just diffused everything so much. And, and, and I learned that that is how you get rid of humiliation. You laugh, you break, you diffuse it. And... The dad was probably just as humiliated as we are, so he was willing to let it go. Nobody wants to hold on to humiliation, so don't do it. Let it go. Laugh at it. Thank you so much. That's my story. I'm Roger Hales. Have a great Wednesday night. What's the matter? I just saw something. That is just a clown. Well, I'm afraid of clowns. You ever been to the circus? Well, when I was a kid. Did you like it? Uh, well, you know, it's fun. I'm kind of scared of the clowns. <laughs> Are you still scared of clowns? Yeah. <laughs> long after midnight and I am tired. I'm sitting in my wheelchair in the rain on the tarmac at the Avato International Airport in Madagascar. I'm waiting to board my Air France flight to Paris and then home to DC. I'm a lawyer and a conflict resolution specialist and my colleague Reet and I have just finished delivering training to the World Bank country office. So I'm sitting under an umbrella held by one of the two local men next to me who are going to have to get me onto this 747. They don't speak English, so we wait in silence. My neck cranes as I look up a long set of silver steps that lead to the doorway of the plane. There is no jetway here. And due to a car accident, I'm paralyzed, so to get me on this plane, these men have to carry me up one and a half stories of steps. I hate to be a pain in the ass. I pride myself on my independence. So when I find myself in a situation like this where I have to have help, I try and make up for it by being helpful, charming, and positive. The Air France personnel at the bottom of the stairs signal us to board the plane. And the men clasp their hands underneath me and behind my back to form a seat while I place my arms across their shoulders and away we go up the stairs. When we reach the top of the stairs, there's an Air France flight attendant, tall, slender young man who's bald and young, and he throws up his hand for us to stop. And then he says, we are not ready for boarding yet. And I'm thinking, seriously? They expect these poor guys to just hold me here? But I don't say anything. A few minutes go by and I sweetly ask, can I come on board now? No. Well, I can feel the men's arms start to tremble beneath me. So I ask again, can they just place me on the first seat inside the door? No. Ten minutes later, I can feel the men's whole bodies shaking now. I feel bad for them and I'm scared to death they're going to drop me any minute when finally the flight attendant says, you may bald now. We rush into the cabin and these guys just dump me in my seat. And then as the rest of the flight boards, Reet looks out the window and she says, Hey, Anne, they're taking your personal wheelchair back to the terminal. 
Ah! So we flagged the purser, and after much commotion, my wheelchair is rescued and placed on the plane. I'm used to snafus when traveling, so I just take it in stride. I figure, you know what? The worst is over. And I just settle in for my 12-hour flight to Paris. Midway through the flight, nature calls. So I ring for the flight attendant, and this time I get a middle-aged brunette with really bright red lipstick on, you know, the kind that accentuate the wrinkles around a woman's mouth. And I say, excuse me, I need to use the bathroom. Can you please bring me the onboard aisle chair? She looks surprised and says, but it's not in the paperwork. Okay, but I still need to use the bathroom. She walks away and then comes back with the manifest, points to my name and says, See? It says right here, you are a level C handicapped. That means you can walk. Wow. If only I'd known all I needed to walk after all these years was to get categorized as a level C handicapped in the Air France system, I would have done that a long time ago. So I take a deep breath and I say to her, well, regardless of what it says on your manifest, I'm paralyzed and cannot walk. Perhaps you noticed them carrying me on board the plane earlier. I need the aisle chair. But the paperwork is the ultimate authority. My God, this is outrageous. I just want to use the bathroom. And then Reed pops up and says, just show me where the aisle chair is and I'll do it myself. So Reed gets the aisle chair. I use the bathroom. No problem. I'm back in my seat when the flight attendant comes up to me and says, we have called Paris and told them all about you. I really don't understand why they're making such a big deal out of this, but I stick with the positive and I say, great, they'll have six hours to get ready for me. We land in Paris and I tell the flight attendant, you know, please make sure they bring my wheelchair up to the jetway. And she says, but that is impossible. Your wheelchair will be waiting for you in Washington. Well, first of all, it's not impossible. I mean, every other airline brings my wheelchair up to the jetway as standard operating procedure. And secondly, your colleagues at the airport in Madagascar told me I could have my wheelchair at the jetway in Paris. And thirdly, they only put a Paris claim tag on the chair. Oh, don't worry. Your chair will be waiting for you when you get to Washington. Sorry, but I can't take that risk. It's not tagged for Washington. And if I don't have my personal wheelchair when I get home, I can't function. Fine, we will bring you your wheelchair. Now just get off the plane in one of ours. Okay, <laughs> but it's one o'clock now and my connection is at 2.30. So they put us on a people mover and we change terminals and then they tell us, you must go to baggage claim to get your chair. Seriously? We have to go outside of security? Ugh, so they escort us to baggage claim and we wait. And this is ridiculous because we wait and we wait and we wait. And I finally asked the Air France guy with us, can you please tell me where my chair is? He shrugs, speaks rapid French into his walkie-talkie, and Reed, who speaks French, tells me they can't find it, Anne. Oh, I am so angry, but I am at their mercy until I get home, so I don't say anything. I do turn to Reed though and say, save yourself. You don't have to stay here with me. Get on the flight. And she says, I'm not leaving you with these crazy people. What a friend. Well, 2.15, 2.30, the flight takes off without us. They finally bring my wheelchair out at 3 p.m. 
We make our way to the Air France customer service desk in the center of Charles de Gaulle Airport. The woman behind the counter is tall and blonde with her hair in a French twist, of course. And she tells me, there are no more flights today to Dulles. You'll have to purchase a new ticket for tomorrow. I'm like, why do I have to purchase a new ticket? Because it's your fault you missed the connection. No, this is your mistake. You lost my wheelchair. Madam, you insisted you must have your wheelchair. So Reet pulls out her phone, calls our travel agent at American Express and starts complaining. The Air France woman leans over the counter, takes Reet's phone out of her hand, tells American Express, everything is fine, I'm handling it, and then hangs up. And then she turns to me and says, the ticket for tomorrow will be $4,230. Will that be cash or credit card? Oh, that's it. This bitch is going down. I may have special needs, and it's my mistake for thinking I have to apologize for that, but I am deserving of the same respect and service as every other passenger. Drawing upon all my legal and conflict resolution skills in the middle of that Charles de Gaulle airport at the crossroads of their many terminals, I take a deep breath and say, you lost my wheelchair, you arrogant, ignorant witch. I am not going to buy another goddamn ticket. You are going to give me a new ticket, a night in a hotel, and meal vouchers for the two of us, or I am going to sit here and scream my head off until you do! She freezes. Hundreds of people in the terminal stop and turn to look at us. It feels like the whole place is waiting, holding its breath, to see what she is going to do. Finally, she turns to her computer screen, taps away at the keyboard, and then there's the sweet music of the printer spitting out two new tickets, hotel and meal vouchers. She gathers the documents, put them in an envelope, slides them across the counter to me and says, Bon voyage.
This is Risk. This is Royal Canoe behind me now. And we just heard Anne Thomas. Anne has, uh, she was just on the show quite recently, actually. We love Anne. Listen, if you didn't already know, Risk is very soon to have our 200th episode. But you might be aware that if you get all your podcasts from iTunes, a lot of the earliest episodes of Risk are really only available in the album section of iTunes. A lot of the classic episodes from the first and second year, some truly extraordinary content there that you really don't want to miss out on. If you just look up Risk in the album section of iTunes, there's a few dozen episodes there that have been remastered with the advertisements taken out, and they just still sound amazing. They're still some of our best stuff, so don't miss out on that. Also, our all-star episodes, several of our all-star episodes are there, so you really, really got to check it out. Our last story today comes from another favorite of ours. I just love hearing her tell stories. Here she is at the People's Improv Theater in New York City. This is Christine Gentry. The story we call Bamboo. So I like to consider myself on the short list of good things to come out of Texas. And I know that uh, one of the last things you think about when you think of my home state is bamboo, but bear with me. I grew up on the poor side of a very large suburb of Dallas, and across the street from our house was this elementary school playground. And one corner of this playground had been completely taken over by bamboo forest. Inexplicably, it's like someone had brought home a bamboo plant, thought it was real cute to like plant it in their backyard, and because there are no pandas in Texas, the bamboo proliferated and just took over this entire corner of the playground, and the school had just let it do that. So, to any like innocent bystander, they would look at this and be like, "That's impenetrable. I would never go in there." It's like I don't know if you've ever seen a bamboo forest, but the stalks grow very close to each other. So, if you were to try to go in there, you'd clearly get scratched up. You get covered in ticks. Which is true, by the way. You do get scratched up and covered in ticks if you do that. But my brothers and I, my two younger brothers and I, we knew that it was totally worth it. If you, if you push through for like 20, 30 seconds, you get, yeah, sure, you get scratched up, sure, sure. Like later in the shower, you find the ticks, you pick them out. But it was so worth it because then you would get spilled out into this gorgeous clearing and it was like perfectly circular. And I don't even know why, but for some reason, the bamboo didn't grow in this like 10 foot diameter circle in the middle of this bamboo forest. And this place was sacred to me and my brothers. Like when we played house, this was our living room. Uh, we played dinosaurs. We had my mom like boil hard boiled eggs and one of us would sit on them. And we'd like, we'd be like the mama dinosaur and the the other two would be going around like this like raptors you know like jurassic park <laughs> waiting for the chance to like grab the grab the eggs uh and and i would play in there alone by myself all the time too like i like i loved fern gully <laughs> thank you 
and I would grab like a little twig and I would pretend it was a little like forest dwelling animal and it would be beep bop around the bamboo and like root for earthworms underneath rotting leaves and suck sap from stalks and whatnot. Unless you think this is um, elementary school behavior, let me assure you this is me at 13. <laughs> Here are a couple other things you should probably know about me at 13. I was about the same height, but like 85 pounds, like soaking wet. My knees were always scratched up from like climbing trees or playing rough with my brothers. My favorite movie was Anne of Green Gables. (laughs) Heard a woo, thank you. Let's see if I get a woo for this one. Favorite musical artist, Barry Manilow. What, no woo? Oh, a slight woo. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and I was an egregiously late bloomer, like in case that's, that wasn't already clear from what you already know. Like my friends, they were, they were all growing boobs, they were wearing bras, and my chest was not only flat, it was concave. <laughs> I was the skipper doll of my class. And this brings me to the reigning king of the school bus, that yellow tube of torture. Cliff Landers was his name. I'll never forget Cliff Landers. And you know this dude, all right? This is the dude who has the Caesar haircut. It's so full of gel that if you move your hand too quickly close to it, it'll get cut, okay? And then he, sometimes he would spike it up into like this crown and he wore the like metal bead choker necklace. You know what I'm talking about. Cliff Landers' favorite game to play on the bus was the pube game. And the pube game involved everyone reaching into their pants, plucking a pube, laying it out in the seafoam green seat of his choice, and then the person with the longest pube wins. (laughs) Now, I couldn't play this game. I pretended that I wasn't playing this game because it was disgusting, and it was disgusting. But of course, Cliff knew that I wasn't playing because I couldn't, and he made sure that everyone in the school bus knew that like Christine can't play because Christine doesn't have pubes. <laughs> I fucking hated Cliff Landers, okay? And because we were poor, like the only clothes we ever wore were clothes that we bought from the thrift store, the like, local thrift store. And I didn't, honestly, I didn't know to be ashamed of this. I thought the thrift store was great. I loved this place. It was like a giant concrete box. And when you go in, it's just rows and rows and rows and rows of clothes, and it's like treasure hunting. Like you find something cool. And because this was Texas, like the owner had this chow chow that would just run around. <laughs> like he just let it run around the store and piss and shit everywhere. I loved this chow chow so much. And it would follow me as I was like looking for clothes. And I remember this one day I found this shirt and it was the perfect 80s find. It was beautiful. It was like off the shoulder, it was white, had like an eyelet action going on, puff sleeves. (laughs) And I brought it back to that dressing room and that's where the chow chow had its little bed. And I remember this moment, like me and the chow chow shared this moment, like looking at myself in the the mirror of this dressing room. And I was like, oh my God, like for the, for quite literally the first time in my life, I was like, I look pretty. Like, like this shirt makes me look pretty. And I was so excited to wear this shirt to school. And the next day I wore it and like my teachers were giving me compliments. They were like, Christine, you look so nice. And my friends were like, oh, you're so cute. And I walked onto the school bus that afternoon with my chin held high for the first time ever, 
Like nothing could bring me down from this like gorgeous shirt and this gorgeous day. And I'm walking down the aisle of the school bus and Cliff Lanner stands up and cuts me off in the aisle. And my heart starts beating wildly. Like there's no, there's no way that I'm about to have an interaction with Cliff Landers that isn't just horrible. <laughs> like he's never said anything to me that isn't horrible. And the entire school bus is like, <gasps> whoa. And Cliff says, Christine, are you not wearing a bra with that shirt? And I was like, yeah, of course I am. I'm 13, why wouldn't I be? He reaches out with both hands and says, no, you're not. Grabs the sleeves of the shirt and yanks it down. To prove to the entire school bus that not only was I not wearing a bra under that shirt, I wasn't wearing anything. And the entire school bus fills with this wave of laughter. And I pull up my shirt, and I sink down into the seat closest to me, and I clench my teeth so tight that it feels like my teeth are going to explode out of my face. Because the last thing I ever want in my life is for Cliff fucking Landers to see me cry. And I hold my shirt like this, the entire school ride home. And when it pulls up to the corner of my house, I realize that that entire ride, this shame, had just been building up in me like boiling water, like rolling over on itself. And because it had nowhere to go, it was turning inward. And I was like, "How? who the fuck are you to think that you were pretty? Like to think that this shirt made you pretty? Like you're not fucking pretty. Like you, you're a worthless, like boobless piece of shit. And, and, and I got off of that bus and I just started running toward this increasingly blurry patch of green that I knew was across from my house. And when I got to that bamboo forest, I just pushed through for that 20 seconds. And I spilled into this clearing and curled up into the fetal position and just sobbed. I sobbed myself to sleep to the sound of those like hollow stems knocking against each other. And by the time my mom called me in for dinner, I had this weird feeling that I was gonna be okay even though I didn't know why. And I told this story recently to a group of East New York, Brooklyn high school kids. And their first reaction was, one of the boys goes, yo, this story makes me want to fight a dude. (laughs) (laughs) One of the girls was like, for real? Like, what's this dude's number? Like, Give us his not like we need to talk. <laughs> and this other girl was like, right? Like New York ain't the yellow school bus, am I right? <laughs> and one of the girls, and I swear to God, this girl has not spoken word one in front of the class yet, and she raises her hand. I was like, yeah, yeah. What do you have to say? And she goes, all right. So, if you was to see him today, what would you do? And I thought about it and I was like, you know what? Like this, this incident totally haunted me in a very powerful way for many years. Like I was very self-conscious about my body. I didn't like grow in to myself as like a womanly figure or whatever until I was well into my 20s. Uh, but, but now I gotta say, like now I'm feeling all right. And I looked this dude up on Facebook <laughs> and I gotta say, <laughs> I could take this chubby receding hairline Dallas area real estate broker (laughs) with one punch, blindfolded. Thank you.
That is all for this episode, folks. This is Foles, F-O-A-L-S, behind me now. Don't forget that at thestorystudio.org, we have a bunch of new workshops coming up. I have one coming up this Saturday, August 16th. That's a one-day storytelling for business workshop. But there's many other workshops we have available. If you just go to thestorystudio.org and listen, for any classes reserved in August, if you use the promo code AUGUST30, August 3-0, you can get $30 off any class if you reserve it in August. So please do go over to thestorystudio.org and check out our one days, our two days, our six-week workshops in New York and in Los Angeles, our one-on-one coaching over Skype or in person, and of course our corporate training. It's all at thestorystudio.org. And I hope you do know that you can always go to risk-show.com slash tour to find out where we're doing a live show next. For example, in August, August 28th, we're doing a live show in New York and a live show in Los Angeles. On the 29th of August, we're in Austin, Texas. On September 17th, we're in Portland, Oregon. On September 18th, we're in San Francisco. On October 17th, we're in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Listen, Always keep up with it at risk-show.com slash tour. And for all of those out-of-town gigs, 
Pittsburgh, Austin, San Francisco. We need your pitches. Pitch us at the submissions page at risk-show.com. Risk-show.com slash submissions. Just check out the site because there's so much to find there. There's the tables of contents of all the episodes. There's many episodes that are no longer available on iTunes but are still free on our site. And so much more at risk-show.com. Listen, Risk is a proud and happy member of the Maximum Fun network of podcasts. And like all Maximum Fun podcasts, we are listener-supported. So please help us out if you love what we do. Go to MaximumFun.org slash donate and become a member or make a one-time donation and be sure to earmark it for Risk. And now back to my complete and total disaster of a summer of 2014. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk.